Okay. Boy. So welcome um, to not the class on priesthood. Um, so next week I will be starting a two-month class on the biblical doctrine of, of the priesthood. And so I didn't want to, there's a reason why I wanted to start it on, on the 12th. And uh, that has to do with what will happen at the tail end of the class. So that kind of left today as uh, an open slot. And so I thought this would be a good time to do a soft start of the class on the priesthood by talking about the other two things that Christ is. So if, if we're talking about priesthood, what are the other two things that Christ is in terms of being a priest? He is a prophet and a king. So, because Christ is prophet, priest, and king. So our class on the priesthood will be to the exclusion of being a prophet and king. We're not going to talk about those things. We're going to zero in specifically on the priesthood. So tonight I thought I would talk about, just in sort of a shorthand, uh, the prophets and the kings. But really, where I want to start is uh, looking at the first, the prototype and the paradigm of prophets and kings. And we may expand further beyond that afterwards, but so what do I mean by the prototype and the paradigm? Well, what is a prototype? What was that? Uh, sorta, it's the, it's the first, it's the thing that's, that, uh, that, that all other things will follow and in some way emulate. Um, so tonight, and then the paradigm is, is the model on which things are, are based. And so uh, that's really what I want to focus in on tonight. So I'm going to address prophets, and then we'll address kings. And I think you'll begin to see a little bit of a repetition going on here as we begin. And that repetition, once we get going, I should say, that repetition is going to continue into the first class on the priesthood because there is a very definite connection between these things. So, um, so to begin then, what is a prophet? Yes. Is there anything else that a prophet does? Okay, there are three things that prophets are called to do. One is to, to teach. It says in Deuteronomy 4.5 that prophets are to teach. Prophets are also to receive oracles from God. And it's hard for me to even give a verse as evidence of this because, I mean, you can look at the entire book of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or the, the book of the Twelve and so on, etc. These are all oracles from God. Are all of the oracles predictive? Telling the future? No. No. Like, think of Jonah. Is Jonah a prophet? He's one of the 12 minor prophets. 
And is he a book that is an oracle telling the future? Not really. So really what, what the oracles are are communicating God's will to the people. That's really what the role of the prophet is, is to be doing. So it could be predictive, and a lot of it is, but not all of it is. So, and then the last role of a prophet is to, is to judge. And so when we look at Scripture, who is the prototype of the prophets? Not the first prophet, but and maybe you could say he's the first prophet. He's not the first one called a prophet, though. But who would be the prototype of the prophets? It's Adam. So believe it or not, Adam is going to be the first prototype of the prophets, of the kings, and of the priests. All of the different things that prophets, priests, and kings do, in some capacity we will see Adam fulfilling those roles. And there will also be, at various times, strong linguistic markers that are going to indicate that those roles are being fulfilled. So, how do we see Adam functioning as a prophet? What is God, what is God, what happens in Genesis 2, 16 through 17? says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Now remember that surely die part, because we're going to come back to that. But <clears throat> look further down, look at verse 23. Or not 23, uh, just the next verse, 18. Has woman been created yet when, by the time God has prohibited Adam from eating of the fruit? So God gives his oracle to Adam prior to the creation of Eve. Yet when we get to chapter 3, we look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees, in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So, what has Adam done with what he was told in Genesis 2 16 through 17 by the time we get to Genesis 3 2 and 3? No, well, yeah, but that's who, who's speaking to the serpent? Yeah. Did God give that prohibition to Eve or to Adam? Adam. So what did Adam do? He communicated God's will to Eve. So he has performed the role of the prophet in communicating God's will to his people. Even at the very beginning, he is doing so. So it's a limited ex, you know, example, but in all things, Adam is serving as the prototype. So he is, he is serving as the prototypical 
prophet in Scripture. Now we're going to come back to Adam in a minute. So who is the first person to actually be called a prophet in the Bible? Turn to Genesis 20. And look at verse 7. It says, now, this is when uh, Abraham has encountered Abimelech, and uh, he, Abimelech, took Sarah, and so on. You know, you know the story. But what happens when God appears to Abimelech, or communicates with him, and says, now return the man's wife, the man being whom? Right, he says, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Adam, sorry, not Adam, Abraham is reckoned to be the first one to be identified as a prophet in the Bible. But there are other strong linguistic markers that that further substantiate Abraham's... If I say Adam at this point, I'm talking about Abraham. So I'm sorry, in my head I keep saying Adam, and I'm almost on the verge of saying it out loud, so don't get confused. I probably confused you more just by saying that. Um... So yes, the Hebrew word for prophet is navi or nabi, depending on how you point the Hebrew. And this is the first instance that it is used, and it is used to identify Abraham as a prophet. But as I was saying, there are other strong linguistic markers that identify Abraham as a prophet. One of those is in Genesis 15. So in Genesis 15.1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. What happens in Genesis 15, just out of curiosity? It's kind of an important chapter. Yes, this is when Abraham, when God cuts the covenant with Abraham. This is a very significant event in the history of God's salvation. So it, it, is, it is a pivotal event. It's hard to understate it. But when they're right there at the beginning, at the beginning of him making his covenant with Abraham, he says, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now that concept that the word of the Lord came to him is a prophetic marker. We see that repeatedly in the Old Testament. I made a partial list just to give you an idea of how extensive that is. Jeremiah 14.1, Jeremiah 46.1, Jeremiah 47.1, Jeremiah 49.34, Ezekiel 1.3, Haggai 2.10, Zechariah 1.7, Zechariah 1.1, Zechariah 7.1, Daniel 9.2, 2 Chronicles 12.7, and so on, and so on, and so on. 
So whenever you see that phrase, in Hebrew in particular, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's the same phrase in Hebrew each time. The word of the Lord came to. It's always in conjunction with prophetic activity. So the fact that it is here being associated with Abraham is a significant indicator that Abraham is functioning in a prophetic capacity. Now, receiving the covenant from God isn't quite, that's not necessarily prophetic, but then we see later that Abraham is, in fact, identified by God himself as a prophet. What do people often say about Samuel? He's the what? The last what and the first what? No. It's often reckoned that he's the last judge and the first prophet. But that is a misstatement of the facts. It would be more accurate to clarify that he is the last judge and the first of the office of prophet. Because you have to distinguish between somebody who is functioning in prophetic capacity with, before God and the office of prophet that is going to exist in the kingdom of Israel. So, there, I mean, there are going, there's even going to be a school for prophets in Israel. Like Elisha and Elijah have prophets in training and things like that. So you have an office of prophet, but you also have people who are functioning prophetically. Does that make sense? I mean, to be in the office of prophet, you kind of have to be a prophet. But others can function prophetically as prophets as well. Abraham is one of them. Adam. Moses. Moses is significant. How do we, I mean, what do, what's significant about Moses as being a prophet? Yeah, he did. Moses, A, is identified as a prophet, but also he is identified as the one when there will be a prophet like Moses who shall arise. And so in the New Testament, when Christ is performing his his miracles, and people are saying, is this the prophet? They're saying that in recognition of Numbers 12, 6 through 8, which is predicting that there will one day be a prophet like Moses. And that's Christ. So Christ is... Moses, rather, sorry. Is, even though he is not fulfilling that role of... that office of prophet that's going to exist in the kingdom, he absolutely is a prophet of God. One of the greatest, obviously. But Abraham is also going to be filling that role. But what does it say? Go back to Genesis 27. Lost my place. But it, it says... Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that you, he will pray for you, and you shall live. 
But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die and all who are yours. That, that phrase in Hebrew, you shall surely die, where, does that stick out? Where, where have we heard that before? In the garden. And do you, know, do you know where else that phrase specifically appears in the Bible? Nowhere else. So where Abraham is being identified as a prophet, specifically, explicitly, so too is the same phrase appearing. And then when Adam is functioning prophetically in communicating God's will to Eve, so too is that same phrase appearing. Does that make sense? So it's a linguistic marker. When Moses is writing this book, when he's writing Genesis, he is intentionally using these phrases specifically to link them in your mind. He wants you to say, I've heard that before. Where have I heard that? Oh, this is where I've heard that. What's the connection? Does that make sense? When we study the Bible, this is one of the many things that we should be looking for. We should be looking for phrases that are repetitive because God has established patterns in Scripture that help us to connect the things that he wants connected. And it's not just this, it's, it's throughout this. There's one other place where a similar phrase does appear. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar. And that's Genesis 26:11 with Isaac. Similar situation, not an accident, that the same phrase is appearing in a similar scenario between Isaac and another Abimelech. So 26.11 says, if I could find it in my small text. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. In Hebrew, the surely be put to death and surely die are very, very close. They're off by about a letter. So slightly different situation, slightly different wording. But again, hearkening back to the garden, and look at the same phrase is appearing now in Genesis 3.3, where Eve says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's the same phrase that appears in 26.11. So again, you have a very definite connection. You have 20, Genesis 2, 16 and 17 connected to Genesis uh, 20 verse 7. You have Genesis 26, 11, similar situation to 20, to chapter 20, connected to Genesis 3, 3, which is immediately subsequent to the events in 2, 16 and 17 in the creation of Eve. So all of this is to say that Adam is the prototype, but Abraham is being established as the paradigm. He's setting the expectations for what prophets are going to be doing. But Adam is the first to fulfill these things, just as he's the first who will be the last.
I heard somebody whisper it. Yes, Jesus. So where Adam fails in his prophetic task, who will succeed ultimately in his prophetic mission? Jesus. So what was that? Oh, sorry. Okay, so that's just a brief look at at uh, Adam and Abraham as prototype and paradigm of prophet. And, I mean, this is not really giving anything away, but when we look at the priesthood, it's going to be the same thing. Adam and then Abraham are going to function as the prototype. Adam will be the first priest. And then Abraham will function as the paradigm of priesthood. And this is also the case with being what? What's the other third thing in the trifecta? No, king. Prophet, priest, and king. So what does a king do? He rules. He, what's, what's a good way to, to, to say it in, in thinking about God as king? Yeah, he exercises sovereign authority. He is sovereign over all things. So in the Bible, at least in terms of a human king, 1 Samuel 8.20 establishes the expectations for what the people expected from their king. <clears throat> what was that? He was. So this is right when Saul is being uh, about to be appointed or anointed, I should say, king. But in it says in 19, it says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, and here's the expectations, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may, one, judge us, and two, go out before us and fight our battles. Now, isn't that ironic that... Who's been doing that prior to this? What? Yeah. Yeah. God has been doing that for them. And has he been fighting their battles? Yeah. I mean, literally. He's pulling down walls. He is giving them victory. Who did Joshua meet outside the walls of Jericho? In Joshua 5. No, it's before that. It's the commander of the armies of Yahweh. And what does the commander of the armies of Yahweh do? Tell, what does he tell Joshua to do? Yeah, take off his sandals for the ground he is on is holy. And what does Joshua do? He gets down and worships. Does an angel receive worship? Absolutely not. 
So who is this? Where have we seen this scene before with the Yeah, where have we Yeah. Yeah. So who is this? Who is this in Joshua 5? Who who are we looking at? God who? Who's in who's in Revelation on a white horse in white clothes? Yeah. This is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity appearing before Joshua. So, it's no angel. And we know it's Christ because what? What does it say in John? No man has seen what? Seen the Father. But if you've seen Christ... You have seen the Father. Is Joshua a man? Yeah. If he saw the Father, he'd be obliterated. So he is encountering God. Who is the God that we encounter? It's the Son of God. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ appearing before Joshua, before the conquest, before the the going into and fulfillment, at least partially, of the promises that God made to Abraham in chapter 12 and chapter 15. So Christ is present in these events. I totally lost my train of thought. But, you know, it's interesting too, you know, before we get into Adam as king and all that kind of stuff, It's interesting that when you look here at Saul becoming king, since that's what we're talking about, and talking about God being their king, who is the first one that that Saul goes out and fights? Look in chapter 11. He defeats the Ammonites. And who is the king of the Ammonites? It's Nahash. Where have we heard that name before? I'm really throwing some stuff out at you guys, so I apologize. No, you know, this is, this is what I love. This is what I, why I love this. Because Scripture is so vast, and we read these things, and we just blow past it, but there are so many connections that it, and it, when they say Scripture interpret scripture. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we're talking about. When, we, when, when it talks about how the, old, the whole Old Testament preaches Christ, we're not talking about a few prophecies about like a virgin birth and things like that. We're talking about Christ is present in all of these things. So how is he present in chapter 11? So it says, then Nahash the Anamite, am, blah, 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 blah. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead and goes on and on and on and on. And Saul goes out and he defeats Nahash. Well, what does Nahash mean? Literally, it's Hebrew for serpent. And what, where do we see that name in other places? Well, we see in, in Second Chronicles, now I can't remember if it's Second Chronicles or First Chronicles. I think it's Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles twenty nine or thirty. 
Hezekiah is cleaning out the temple and he destroys Nehushtan. What's Nehushtan? It's the serpent that Moses, the bronze serpent that Moses made to raise up so people could look at and be saved from the serpents that are coming at them. So the people saved Nehushtan, Nahash, Nehushtan, serpent on a stick. The people saved it and it became an idol in the temple. And Hezekiah, in cleaning the temple out, finally throws the thing away, smashes it up. No more idols. Hezekiah is fantastic. He's one of my absolute favorites. But, so what is it saying here in, in 1 Samuel? In, you look at 1 Samuel 12, 12, and I'm way off track, and I apologize, guys, but I love this stuff. <laughs> it says, and when you saw that nah- this Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, and you said to me, but no king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So they're saying, he's saying, God was their king. God was their sovereign ruler. And yet Nahash came up and they said, we want a king like all the other nations. So we got Saul. And Saul went out and he beat Nahash and everything looked rosy. So what did they do? They traded Yahweh for an earthly king out of fear of a serpent. Doesn't that point back to the garden? Isn't that kind of crazy? It's kind of weird, huh? But you don't read chapter 12 of Samuel, chapter 11 of Samuel, and think, well, that's obviously pointing to the garden. But it is. And these things are not by accident. So, let's get back on track. I apologize for going off course on Samuel. I Or... Uh, yeah, with Saul and all that kind of stuff. But it, it's interesting stuff. So how do we see Adam as functioning as king? All of creation. Yeah. Yeah. What was Adam made... No, in the image of, yeah, and who is the king? Yeah, well, God, yeah, God is, is king, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is, God is sovereign over all. So we are made in the image of the king. And Adam was made in the image of the king. He bore the king's seal, if you will. He was given the role of exercising God's authority by naming the animals. He was told to serve and protect creation, to have dominion over creation. And that term dominion is radah in Hebrew. And that is a term that is commonly associated with the rule of the kings, is dominion. So even though he's not called a king, just as he's not called a prophet, spoiler, he's not called a priest, 
there are markers of each of those things present in Adam because he is a prototype of kingship. And again, where Adam is going to fail, who is going to succeed as king? Yes, yes, Jesus is the king who will not fail. He will not fall short. Who, who was the king that was like after God's own heart? Did David fail? Yeah. And he was Israel's greatest king. He was the king who was closest to God. And yet, he obviously failed. Because he was a sinful man, just like all the other kings. But there is one king who won't be sinful. So, but what about Abraham? How do we see Abraham behaving like a king, or functioning as a king? What? Um, yeah. He's not quite the leader of a nation. What's... But yet, but... Genesis 14 is actually a very kingly chapter with regards to Abraham. It's a really important chapter. Um, and... Yes... And Genesis 14 is going to form a, a trio of passages that are going to show or demonstrate uh, kingly expectations for men within Israel. Genesis 14, Judges 6 through 8, and 1 Samuel 30. Those, all three of those chapters are going to be tied together by the events that unfold within them. So Genesis 14, we see a lot of kings, do we not? We see Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chatterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim. Uh, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Birshah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboam, the king of Bela, and all of these joined forces in the valley of Sidim. Can I pause and answer my phone? It's the one person who it could be an emergency. <laughs> so, should I check? You guys mind?
I am embarrassed and I apologize. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, thank you. Thank you. So, uh, however, I have no idea where I was. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was reading all the names of those kings. So, right off the bat, what does that tell you about Genesis 14? Well, are there a lot of kings? Yeah. And then there's the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboam and the king of Bela and so on and so forth and so forth. Lots of kings. Does Abraham treat with them as an equal? Yeah. He treats with them as if he himself were a king. I mean, and all those kings are not in there by accident, but to give some kind of indication of, I mean, A, it happened, but also it tells us about the position that Abram, or Abraham, or it's Abram at this point, that he's in, in relation to these kings. He himself is kingly. What's he going to do to them? He's going he's gonna to beat them. So he, he is going to beat all these kings and demonstrate his own superiority. Now, what's the connection between this and Gideon? So if you go to Judges 6, 7, and 8, I'll just tell you, you don't have to read it all right now. But in those passages, Gideon is going to have a similar encounter with other peoples, with the king and other peoples. And similar things are going to happen with Gideon that happen with Abraham in this part of Genesis. Their forces are winnowed. How many people does it say Abraham went to battle with? 318. How many does Gideon go to battle with? Remember how he's 300, but he started with thousands, and he was finally left with the 300 who drank the water like a dog. Or drank it, I don't know, it's kind of, the Hebrew's a little... Yeah, so the ones that lapped it up are the ones that were supposed to go with Gideon. And the number was 300. Both Abraham and Gideon learned the disposition of the enemy uh, by special knowledge. They both decline rewards after their victory. Abraham declines the spoils. Gideon is offered kingship and declines it. However, even though he declines kingship, he is functioning as a king. What's his son's name? What's the son of Gideon's? What is the blah. What is Gideon's son's name? It's Abimelech. What does Abimelech mean? My father is king. So the son of of Gideon, and 
Abimelech tries to set himself up as a king. And Abraham, Gideon rather, he rules as king, although he fails where Abraham succeeds because Gideon does take one small reward and that is he takes the rings of the defeated and he makes an ephod out of it, a priestly garment. And that ephod becomes idolatrous to the people under Gideon. They both fight Amalekites. They both attack at night. They both pursue the enemy kings and defeat them. And the angel of Yahweh appears to both of them. So again, the author of the book of Judges is intending people to read that and say, hey, I've read this before. Where did I read that before? In Genesis 14. And so both of them are functioning in a kingly capacity. And both of those sections, chapters, have an analog in 1 Samuel 30 with David, where, again, similar events happen once again. And it's interesting, I think this is, this is really rich, but Psalm 110 is really looking back at Genesis 14 because Psalm 110 is joining the kingly conquest of Abraham in chapter 14 Who else is the prominent figure in chapter 14? Yeah, in Genesis, sorry. Yeah, it's Melchizedek. So, and and what does David say about Melchizedek in Psalm 110? That he, his Lord is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. So in that psalm, it's really looking, I mean, it is not like the sole purpose of the psalm, but it is the context of the psalm is looking back at Genesis 14 and combining that kingly position of Abraham with the priestly position of Melchizedek. And you have both present in Psalm 110. And then again, that... Who wrote Psalm 110? David, which we, we, is, you know, figures in 1 Samuel 30, which connects back to Judges 6 through 8 and Genesis 14. So it's a, it's a web of connection where Scripture is just, in, it's piling on, informing on itself again and again and again and again and again. So, but let me ask you this. Is the idea of a king for Israel, is that a bad thing? Is, did God prohibit a king for Israel? No. How do we know he didn't prohibit a king for Israel? Look in Deuteronomy chapter 17. 
So chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. So Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell address to Israel as they are about to end their wanderings and cross the river into the land that has been promised to them. Will Moses cross over? No. Who leads them? Joshua. So the book of Deuteronomy, literally in Greek, it means the second law. It's the second giving of the law. So Moses is remind. It's who was the law given to the first time? No. Moses and the people who left Egypt. Now at the end of the 40 years of wandering, are the people who left Egypt the nation of Israel now? No, all those people that left Egypt, with except for a select few like Caleb and Joshua, all the people that are about to enter the land are the next generation that have come of age over the 40 years of wandering. All the people that rejected God at Kadesh Barnea when the spies went into the land and said, don't go there. It's too dangerous. Who were the two guys that said, no, let's go. Let's do it now. Who were, who were the two? Joshua and who else? Caleb. But the rest of the spies said, no, no, there's no way we can do it. And so the people turned away. They did not have faith in God. And so what happened to all those people who did not have faith in God? They're all buried in the desert somewhere. But their kids... So now, as they're about to go into the land, in the book of Deuteronomy is Moses giving them the law for themselves. As their parents got the law, now as they're going into the land, Moses, is his, the last great act of his leadership is to give them the law as well. And as they're going in, in chapter 17, starting in verse 14, he says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you, and you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must, the king that they choose, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. But if the king doesn't do those things, God in, in Deuteronomy is giving the people permission to establish, to, to raise a king up over themselves. So, why is Saul wrong then? Why is he a bad king? I mean, why is it wrong that he do that? What's the difference between raising Saul and raising David? 
Let me let me ask it that way. What was that? That's true. What are the what was the position of Israel prior to Saul? Who was king? Yeah. And the people rejected God because they wanted a king like all the other nations. And they learned the hard way what it was like to have a king like all the other nations. But when they had a king who had a heart like God's, who led them in the worship of Yahweh, then the nation thrived. Incidentally, you'll notice those three things that they were not, the kings were not to do. Who was the first one to do that? So what are they not to do? Not to get too many horses, not to get too many wives, and too much wealth. And who did that? Yeah, Solomon did that. So He had some, but he did not have like Solomon did. Was David perfect? No. And Bible study has reached its apogee. <laughs> I know. So, yeah, Solomon, the, the wisest man that ever lived, also did the three things the kings were specifically told not to do. So, it's, a, it's an unfortunate thing. But I think Solomon, well, he's kind of a, a tragic figure. He's bittersweet because he did do, there were many things that he did. And I think Solomon really stands out as a warning. This is not intended to sound arrogant, so please forgive me if I do. But I think Solomon stands as a warning to folks who are, who have accrued more years because Solomon did not sin as a young man, but he sinned as an older man. He was an older king by the time he turned his heart from God. So for those of the, you know, those in the church who are advanced in years, he stands as a warning to stay the course and don't, don't lose the path because Disaster can come even at the end when it, you know, when things are, much of your life is settled, disaster can still befall you and all those around you. If you, yeah, yeah. So, but. He, he was a good king most of his life. I mean, he ruled for 40 years, and most of those years he was a godly king. But he fell prey to those three things that he was told not to do, and it ruined him. And it ruined the nation, because his son Rehoboam succeeds him, and only rules two years before things splinter. And the you know the northern tribes go one way and Judah 
goes the other way. So, you know, it, it's it's an important Solomon stands as a very important uh, beacon of warning. So, anyway, I, I hope that in discussing this, you have at least seen in some degree how Adam and Abraham have functioned in prophetic and kingly roles, and they're setting the expectations for those who are to come. Now, when we go into next week, I'm going to start talking about the priesthood, and it's going to sound a lot like this when we start, because we're going to look at how Adam was also functioning. He's the prototype priest. And then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on are also going to be functioning as prototypical priests. So it's going to be a, a mirror image to this class, and we'll be talking a lot about some of the same passages, but seeing the priestly capacity being exercised. And then from there, it'll go off. We're going to spend a whole class, probably, I think, talking about Melchizedek and the establishment of the, the Melchizedekian order. And believe it or not, I mean, we don't ever talk about it, but Melchizedek has uh, a dark mirror image named Adonizedek. He appears in the book of Joshua. But before David, we see two, two kings of Jerusalem, Melchizedek and Adonizedek. Notice how their names are similar? So one is king of righteousness and one is lord of righteousness. Except the lord of righteousness is like, he is, he is, the, he is a type of Satan. So there's going to be all sorts of interesting stuff to glean out of that. So, but Melchizedek is great. And we're going to talk all about the Melchizedekian priesthood and what that means and what it does and so on. So, and eventually the class on the priesthood, we're going we're gonna to work through the Old Testament. I think in six weeks, we'll work through all the Old Testament priesthood. We'll look at the Aaronic priesthood in the book of Leviticus. We'll look at the kings of Jude, Israel and Judah and how they are supposed to be functioning as high priests of Melchizedek. We're going to look at the Garden of Eden and how it pre- presages the tabernacle and that presages the temple and how all of those things are shadows and forerunners of the throne room of God himself and how the priests operate within those things. And ultimately where we're going with this, we'll be looking at Exodus 32. I think it's Exodus 32 where it says that they are to be a Exodus 19, where it says that they are to be a, Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, what does Peter mean in 1 Peter 2.9? And this is where we're going to end up in the class, is where Peter says that we are to be a royal priesthood. So what are we all doing as priests? What does that mean? And how do all of the things that the Old Testament priests 
give us an image of what we are to be doing as priests of God. We are, we are a royal priesthood. So what, what on earth does that mean? And it's significant. Do we pray to God? Who are the people that prayed for Israel? The priests. It's on the basis of our royal priesthood that we are able to approach God. So, I mean, all these things, there's a lot of things that we take for granted that are really rooted in our role as what we call believer priests, the royal priesthood. So, we're going to work through the Old Testament, but we're going to get to the New Testament and see how does this really affect all of us? What, what is our role as priests of God? Does that make any sense? I hope it does. So this was sort of a soft start to that, just talking about prophets and kings. Next week, we're going to talk about priests. Any questions? I hope so. Well, I hope it, by the end, we transcend interesting and it becomes invigorating and encouraging. And I hate to use the word, but applicable. So, okay. No questions? Okay, then I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you, through your Son, have made us all priests, that we are your royal priesthood. I pray that we will continue to serve you and to honor you and to lead others into worship of you. Thank you for this this time of discussion for this class, for all those who are here, pray that it is edifying, that their souls will be satisfied in increased knowledge of who you are, who we are in you, and your word that you have revealed to us. We say all of this in the name of your Son, the great shepherd of the sheep, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everybody.